0: Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. Today, Dr. Rhett Payne continues his series in the Book of Esther. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of His Word. Now let's begin. This is the last part in the series on the Book of Esther. We've been studying this uh, all summer long. And we're talking about the providence of God being on display. This is Part 8, entitled Remember... And we'll read uh, a little more than a chapter. My sources include Mervyn Brenneman's The New American Commentary on Esther, Ian DeGuede's Commentary on Esther from the Reformed Expository, Derek Prime's book, Unspoken Lessons About the Unseen God, which is uh, about Esther, and then a message by David Strain entitled, Holy War. Esther 9, verse 1, this is the Word of God. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. And on this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. So if you've not been here, uh, we've got a a young girl who's a queen, a Jewish girl named Esther. And she has been used of the Lord to save her people, the Jews. Uh, The Jews were going to be wiped out by an evil... Evil man, and yet the tables were turned. So the Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because Fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces, and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dauphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Bizatha. And yes, I practiced that. <laughs> the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Very important statement. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, And let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. And so you can see that Esther is not playing. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. This is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy, and giving presents of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, and had cast the purr, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pure, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered. And observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews. Nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them. And as they had established for themselves and their descendants, in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes, this is chapter 10, verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the story of providence. Teach us this word and teach us your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Even though the name of God is not mentioned even once in this incredible book, the book that we've been studying all summer long teaches us a tremendous lesson. And it's in your outline. God's overruling providence. God's overruling providence is the foundation for all of life. In other words, when God seems to be most absent, it's probably then that He is most at work. Have you had something happen sometime that just kind of upset you because it wasn't in the plan? Yes, we were on vacation last week, week before last. And um, there are those simple things that you just take for granted, right? Like when you push your car button, it's going to start. Now, when you have your car not work, and you're on vacation, it's especially uncomfortable. The problem with this story that I'm going to tell you is, there was no big deal about our day. It was our last day of vacation. I had not gotten to play golf all week, and that was a problem. This was going to be the day that I get to play golf. My wife was going to drive me to the golf course and then go spend money shopping. Just kidding. But she was going to go do something fun for herself. Well I was having fun for myself. And we got in the car and I pushed the button. That's a terrible sound. That's a terrible sound. And, you know, try it again and again. And and you're on vacation. And I don't know about you, I used to carry jumper cables. I, I don't really carry jumper cables anymore in my car. I think I will now. Didn't have any jumper cables. I don't know anybody around me. So I began doing what I do best. I started asking strangers. And, of course, nobody had jumper cables. Long story short, an angel did come and jump our car. And we took it to a place that was open on Saturday. If it had been Sunday, they're all closed. We would have been stuck another day. So, providentially, Pet Boys was open. Ever heard of Pet Boys? Interesting guys, but they did a good job. And basically tested my battery, my alternator, all kind of stuff. And they all were great. I said, well, yeah, the battery's great because I've been driving it to get here. And I, I pretty was, I was pretty much sure that it was a factory battery, and it's been four years. So I had my, I had my, I had that battery a long time. So I said, I don't care if it reads good, give me a new battery. It turned out that that was the problem, and that's just one of those stories where you go, God, thank you, thank you for those little providential acts where you took care of us in a way that was really nice. Some people would call it a coincidence, but. I think that God was helping us, and I appreciate that. You know, one of the features of this book is the number of coincidences that keep coming up throughout the story. Recently we saw, for example, that when King Xerxes battles insomnia, you remember he couldn't sleep one night? It was on the very night that Mordecai's life hung in the balance. God kept him up for a reason. When Haman the Agagite shows up at the court of the king, it was... At just the moment when the king was looking for a way to honor Mordecai the Jew. Although Haman did not know that. And then when the king walks in after he was so disturbed finding out that his edict that he had agreed to needed to be overturned. And it couldn't be overturned. He walks in at the exact moment that Haman the Agagite is falling on the couch on Queen Esther begging for mercy And he sees, this guy's got to go. So, whether you see it in your life or in the lives of those you love, God is at work in the lives of his people. Now, there are problems with that. We live in a real world. A fallen world. Where there are things a lot more serious than a dead battery. And there are times when God does not come through for us. I say it that way because that's really the only way to put it. Not according to the way we would see would be best. And one of the things about being here as long as I've been here is I know a lot of your story. And as a result, I know the the many times where God seemingly has not come through for you. Where your prayer was not answered or something very, very serious happened. Something very, very tragic happened. And there doesn't seem to be a good answer to why. And I struggle with that, just so you know. I long for that day that we will fly away that we just sang about, don't you? Where everything will make sense, where all our questions will be answered. But right now, those questions don't really have wonderful answers. We can memorize scriptures like Romans 8.28, which says that God is at work in everything for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. But even sometimes Romans 8.28 leaves us still with questions. In my study in prayer time, I read this from John Calvin. John Calvin lived 500 years ago. John Calvin had a very tough life. He died at a young age. His wife tried to have child after child after child, and they all died. And he wrote this in the Institutes, which is the the most amazing thing, is he wrote this at about age 28. I mean, at 28, I didn't really know what... I couldn't write anything like this, but... You know, he was such a brilliant guy and such a godly man. And he wrote this about trouble. He said, When dense clouds darken the sky and a violent tempest arises, Because a gloomy mist is cast over our eyes, Thunder strikes our ears, And all our senses are benumbed with fright. Everything seems to, be, to us to be confused and mixed up. But all the while, a constant quiet and serenity ever remain in heaven. So while the disturbances in the world deprive us of judgment, God, out of the pure light of his justice and wisdom, tempers and directs these very moments in the best conceived order to a right end. And the problem is we won't see that right end in this life oftentimes. Sometimes you will, but rarely. For the most part, we won't see it until we see Jesus, until we fly away and see him face to face. And so this is a, a hard book when you're talking about providence. And what comes to mind is all the times when providence did not work in your favor. Because as many times as it did work in your favor, there's just as many times where it does not work in your favor. And the tendency would be to question the living God. And I hope through our study this morning you will understand at least that God is one we need to trust. So I have two lessons for you today and the first is a hard one. It's called holy war. So let's get to, to get to business here and talk about a holy war. What is a holy war? That's what we're seeing in this last chapter or two. In Scripture, it was where the Israelites act as the agents of God's righteous judgment against sinners. That's a holy war. For example, at Jericho, you know what happened at Jericho and other cities like it during the conquest of Canaan? The people were instructed to do what? To destroy the city and all of its inhabitants. That's Joshua 6, verse 21. And in every case that you find holy war, I mean, look at Sodom and Gomorrah, look at the flood in Noah's day. The people were not destroyed because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, the people in these instances were destroyed because they were sinners who were directly opposed to God. I'm sure you've heard the word jihad before, and especially those who live in this century, we've heard that word probably more than we'd like to hear. The word means holy war. We in the West typically understand the word to mean the the fight against Islam's enemies, infidel invaders, military conquerors, occupiers. Many argue that the phrase Holy War is itself originally grounded in Christendom, tracing back its beginnings to the Crusades, to that awful blight on the Christian message. We are still trying to overcome the Crusades as Christians in the light of the gospel message going out to Muslims who will never forget the Crusades. So, oftentimes, jihad takes place without any provocation in an effort to wipe out the infidels, which, by the way, is us. But in the case of the book of Esther, what we have here is self-defense. It's self-defense. As there were so many who either ignored or had not yet received word that the decree of death to the Jews was no longer on the table. Now, why is it important that the date for this battle is given? They kept giving the date. Did you notice the month of Adar? Because on the very day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to wipe out the Jews, the Jews got the upper hand over their enemies. I was riding down the road the other day in Meridian, and there was a car in front of me with a bumper sticker. I used to have all kinds of bumper stickers on my car. It embarrassed people that road with me (laughs) so I have any bumper stickers now I just don't but this bumper sticker caught my attention because it said I'm against the next war boy I got that I'm like yeah I get it you know bloodshed is never something for any of us to be happy about yet as the late church father Augustine taught us there is a time for a just war I mean, we live in a sinful and evil world where sometimes the only way to curtail evil is to exercise military might. And I'll say it again, the Jews did not initiate this hostility that we read about in our text, but by the grace of God, they did finish it. And if you study biblical history or even history in general, you'll recognize that Esther's life and that of her family would not be safe as long as... Haman's family and associates remained alive. So once again, they were acting in self-defense. In no way were they the aggressors. So if we're to really understand what Esther's doing in our text, we have to come to terms with the scriptural tradition of holy war, which leads to a question. Did you notice that three times in our text, in verse 10, verse 15, verse 16, the writer of the book makes a strategic point that in the midst of all this bloodshed, the Jews, quote, did not lay their hands on the plunder. Why is this important? Well, originally Mordecai's decree of giving them permission to plunder, that is, to steal from their enemies. So why didn't they do it? Because the Jews did not want to be accused of trying to inherit possessions that weren't theirs. They didn't want to be accused of going to war to get all that stuff. That wasn't the point. They recognized that the battle in which they were engaged in was not a political conflict. It was a sacred conflict. And that's why it can be called a holy war. Rightly, a holy war. So let's go back and remember, if you knew about it. If not, then let's learn something. Let's go back and look at a failed holy war. Israel's first king was who? Saul. And in his war with the Amalekites, who, by the way, were led by King Agag, and that's why Haman is always called an Agagite, Saul failed to execute the principle of holy war. How did he do that? Well, he left King Agag alive, and on top of that, he plundered the best of the enemy's possessions. Eventually, he was confronted by Samuel, the prophet and priest, over Israel, who rebuked him thoroughly. So turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. Let's read about this real quick. 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. And this is the priest Samuel rebuking Saul 1 Samuel 15:17 Although you were once Samuel said although you were once small in your own eyes did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And Saul said, But I did obey the Lord. No, you didn't. And so because Saul failed to obey and execute holy war against the Amalekites in response to the decree of the Lord and his judgment on Agag and the Amalekites, Saul was disqualified to continue as Israel's king. And as we have arrived in Esther chapter 9, we meet Saul's descendants, Mordecai and Esther, and they are rewriting history, a history of failure that is now becoming one of success. The people of Israel have unfinished business with these Amalekites, and they are executing a holy war against Haman the Agagite, who is a descendant of Agag. Part of doing that is Esther asking permission to do what Saul failed to do. She wants to complete the task of holy war. And part of that is displaying the bodies of Haman's sons, is that familiar to you Bible readers? First Samuel 31 says that hanging the bodies of fallen soldiers was the tradition of ancient warfare. It's what they did. It was the fate of Esther's own ancestor King Saul and his sons. And so she's just getting things right. In our text, the tables have turned again. It's now the enemies of the people of God that are put out to open shame. And if you struggle with this, and you know, I know this is hard stuff, but if you ask how could God order the execution of children as He did with the Amalekites, I hope you'll remember Esther. I hope you'll remember we studied Esther this summer. You see, children like Haman Grow up to be men. Haman grew up to be a mean, evil man who was resentful of the enemies of the of his enemies, the Israelites, and and he sought to avenge their unjust treatment of his forefathers. And in Esther, this understanding is crucial because if the Jews are wiped out, if the Jews are wiped out, which was the plan then how in the world is the Messiah going to come from the Jews? If there are no more Jews. So we need to focus on trusting God even when we do not understand His ways. God looks at things from an eternal perspective. His ways are higher than our ways. you don't believe that, study the book of Job and see how all these questions come up in the book of Job, but not a lot of answers until we get to the last chapter or so. And that's when God puts Job in his place. And you should read Job 42 sometime and see how God said, were you there when I put the sky in place? Were you there when I hung the stars? Were you there? In other words, God is saying, I'm I'm a lot wiser than you are. You need to trust me. And so God is just, he's righteous, holy, loving, gracious, and merciful. And how his attributes work together can be very confusing to us and very painful to us. But that does not mean, that does not mean he is not who the Bible proclaims him to be. That's the first lesson, holy war. The second lesson is holy celebration. Our text records that Mordecai writes down everything in a letter stating that the day of victory will will be forever remembered as a day of celebration, a holiday among the Jews. And he instructed them to celebrate every year on the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar, quote, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. That's verse 22. The Jews called the celebration Purim to remind them of the lot that had been cast for their destruction, but which led instead to their deliverance. So think about it. Their misfortune turned into good fortune. And they still celebrate that. About every March. Pastor Lee Eklav said that the Feast of Purim is kind of like a Jewish Mardi Gras. And the late Eugene Peterson, who was just wonderful, in his book, Five Smooth Stones for Pastoral Work, he said this. The rabbis had a saying that although moderation is required throughout the year, on Purim it was permitted to drink wine until you didn't know the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. (laughs) Now, we don't need to get drunk to celebrate. In fact, to do so would be a sinful choice. But as we conclude our summer-long study of the book of Esther, there have been four primary lessons about God that I hope you'll remember. And I have a place in the outline for you to make note of this. Here's the first. God's preservation of His people. You see, we believe in a sovereign God. A God who will have His way, no matter what the plans of men are. And so, yes, Haman was intending to wipe out the the remaining Jews who had been moved away because of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. We go a couple hundred years later and we get to Persia. And these are the only Jews left. He wants to wipe them out. But God said, no, you will not wipe out my people. And then secondly, the mystery yet the certainty of God's providence, God's providence... Is that God is a God who is at work on behalf of His people. You see, we believe in a sovereign God, which means that we believe in a providential God. God can't be providential if He's not sovereign. If God is sovereign, He is at work in our lives. And we can see it all the time. And thirdly, is the severity of God's judgment. You know, the Scripture says in Hebrews, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, have no mistake. You don't tamper... You know, you don't mess with our God because He is holy and righteous and He will have His way and we are to be in awe of His judgment. As my friend used to say, I don't want want justice, I want mercy. And that should be our prayer. And then the fourth lesson is the importance of remembering God's past mercies. Just as the Jews celebrate even today the Feast of Purim every year, What God did in ancient Persia, we too should celebrate all the time what God did to secure our salvation. And one of the most important ways we do that is by celebrating Holy Communion at this table through the Lord's Supper. I mean, if the Jews celebrated their deliverance so exuberantly, how much more should we you know, and I know a lot of times it's a solemn thing coming to the table, but I think there should be joy when we come to this table. When we think about what happened on that cross for us, we should celebrate what God did that we could never do for ourselves. We could never do this for ourselves. So to keep the cross of Christ and what the cross means, we also have a feast, a feast that was begun by the Lord Jesus The Lord's Supper was initiated to keep the death of Jesus as paramount in our thinking, so that as believers, you and I might always be remembering. Taking into account what Jesus Christ has achieved for us. He set up this meal, not for an annual basis to remembrance, but for as often as we drink and as often as we eat. We do so together. And it's a beautiful thing whenever you do so on the Lord's Day. I mean, we don't have to do this on Sunday, but we normally do. Sunday is the first day of the week. And the whole worship on the first day of the week changed because of the resurrection. The Sabbath was the seventh day. Now it is the first day. But really, it's not about the day. It's about the event and what we're here for. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. Let's read this out loud together. Psalm 13, 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love, My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your story. Your story is such an amazing story. The story of Esther, just another reminder that you are a sovereign God who works through providence. And Lord, we don't understand the way you work, the way you sometimes don't work. But today I pray that you give us grace to trust you. Give us grace to trust you, Lord. To acknowledge that we lament, we are broken hearted over the things that we're facing and have faced and will yet face. That we do not understand. But Lord, help us please to trust you. To know that you love us. Even in spite of the, the darkness that we can't see through. Thank you for the gospel that gives all of us hope, the gospel, Lord Jesus, that you came to take our place on the cross and pay a debt that we could never pay because of our sin. And so as we come to this table in just a little bit, I pray that you will help us, give us grace to celebrate what you've done for us, if indeed we are in Christ. And that really is the question, Lord, for everyone here today. Are you in Christ? Only the only people here know. And so, Lord, I pray that you will touch the people here in this place, that everyone in this place might confirm whether or not they have that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. And so, Lord, would you touch the hearts of those here in this place that do not know you? Or if they have known you, they've walked away from you. And I pray that this will be the day that you bring them back. That you bring them back in repentance so that they can also rejoice at this table.